Hello and welcome to Let's Get Psyched, a program that explores the controversial and challenging issues from a psychological and psychiatric perspective, as well as the implications for clinical practice. I'm your host, psychologist Dr. Aaron Parks of the University of California Riverside's Counseling and Psychological Services, and I'm joined by my co-host, child and adolescent psychiatrist Dr. Toshi Yamaguchi. Hi, Tosha. Hi. The views expressed on Let's Get Psyched are those of the speaker. They do not represent the University of California, UC Riverside's Counseling and Psychological Services, or UCR School of Medicine. Well, on today's part two uh, show on autism, we're going to talk about the ongoing challenges for the autism community, for those affected, and, uh, for those who have autism, to obtain accurate diagnoses and effective treatment to enhance their lives. And to do that, we're very honored to have back on the show, Dr. Barry Prezant. Dr. Prezant has worked for over 50 years with the neurodevelopmentally diverse community and especially the autism community. His professional training is in speech language pathology. pathology. He's faculty at the Brown University Program in Medicine. Dr. Prezant has published more than 130 articles and chapters on autism, childhood communication disorders, and child development, and has given hundreds of seminars and workshops across the US and in 25 countries. He is perhaps most recognized for being the lead developer of CERT's model, which is an evidence-based educational model for individuals with autism and their families, and for his book, Uniquely Human, A Different Way of Seeing Autism, which has been recently updated. Dr. Prezant, thank you for joining us on Let's Get Psyched. My pleasure, thank you. And we're also very pleased to have joining us Dr. Alice Kuo. She is the Chief of Medicine Pediatrics at UCLA. Her research interests include children with neurodevelopmental disabilities and access to services for minority children. She has a PhD in educational psychology and received her MD at UCLA. She's also the director of UC Lend at UCLA. Dr. Quo, thank you for joining us on Let's Get Psyched. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I, you know, I wonder if I could just ask the first question here is, it is my understanding that there is an increase in the, in the diagnosis of autism. And I know that there, this is a somewhat controversial issue because there's also an increase in the diagnosis of other conditions for within children, such as ADHD. And I was wondering if you could both comment on what your thoughts are and, and take is on why this is, why is there this increase? Dr. Prasad, or Barry, why don't you start? Uh, I think this is um, one of the areas of uh, certainly different opinions about that. Uh, um, my personal opinion um, is kind of goes along with what Steve Silverman says in Neurotribes, that I think um, many people on the spectrum have been with us and were not recognized as being on the spectrum. Um, I believe there's been an expansion um, in the category and expansion, and if you will, of the application of the diagnostic criteria. Certainly, um, I, I, one thing that exemplifies that is the belief that autism in women has been terribly um, misdiagnosed or underdiagnosed, um, and that the numbers might be more, rather than the five to one ratio of boys to girls, might be more like two to one, and some people are saying one to one. I think there are many, many factors. Um, there may be a real increase, but I think there are many, many factors outside of a real increase in incidents that speaks to the numbers we're seeing now. Dr. Kroll, what are your thoughts about this uh, increase in diagnosis of, for uh, autism? Yeah, so I agree. I, I think that um, there's definitely more recognition. And as um, the diagnostic criteria have been um, broadened somewhat, I think that uh, people um, Almost everyone knows someone 
perhaps, you know, that is autistic. And I think that, um, you know, in UC land, we try not to focus on diagnoses because that implies some sort of medical, like, quote unquote, disorder. And the autistic community very much identifies their autism as a part of them or an identity. Um, and so I would just say a recognition of individuals who are autistic or have autistic-like features. Um, I agree with the under-recognition in, in girls. Uh, you know, I have many conversations with patients and parents about girl autism and how their criteria or the stereotyped image of the boy spinning in the corner doesn't apply to everyone uh, who is autistic. But I think there's another, you know, from because I also have a population health or a public health lens, I also think society is less tolerant. And so, you know, over time, over the past 50 years, you had kids who were perhaps quirky in the past that, you know, were still accepted, were still able to socialize, and there was more tolerance for differences. And I think as our society has become less tolerant, um, the autistic individuals who may have a different way of doing things or behaving stick out more, if that makes sense. So I think it's a little combination of both. Can you, um, can each of you comment on the, with the standard of, of uh, treatment uh, that is out there? And uh, do you feel like, uh, it, it, overall, do you feel it's effective treatment? Um, I, I want, I, maybe you could explain what the standard of care is first, but then, um, and, or if you do, you, are you suggestive of any changes that we need to make as a society to um, provide or distribute effective treatment? Um, Dr. Kuo, why don't you start with that one? Sure. Um, again, th- to me, this is a, so I, just to explain, I have a primary care practice for neurodevelopmental individuals, and that means I see patients of all ages because I'm board certified as a physician in both pediatrics and internal medicine. Um, and I have a very different perspective, perhaps, because I try not to over-pathologize. So standard of care or standard treatment um, doesn't doesn't really uh, like resonate with me per se. For me, it's um, it's about identifying the needs of each person, each child, each individual, and then uh, addressing those needs. And so, for example, so I have to to give an example. Uh, a few weeks ago, a mom brought a five year old, four or five year old, to come see me, um, and. Uh, they had recently received a diagnosis of autism in this child. And, uh, you know, she, she kind of, as I was entering the room, the clinic room, she pushed me out and she was like, hold on, can I talk to you in the hall? And I was like, uh, sure. And she said, you know, he doesn't know. He doesn't know. And I'm like, okay. And, and we don't use the A word in front of him. And I'm like, okay. So this is kind of an interesting conversation. And, and come to find, like, in, in the clinic room, he was well-behaved, and he, you know, he, his language was on par, and in preschool, he was right on track academically, and so there were really no issues. He perhaps had some socialization, uh, you know, awkwardness, I would say, but, you know, she, her main question for me was, everyone's telling me he needs 25 hours of ABA. Like, do I need to get ABA? And I said, what is the goal? Like, do you have behavioral issues? Are there behavioral issues in the preschool that the teacher's complaining about? And she said, no, not really. He's, he's fine with us. 
And so I said, okay. So we, and so his fixed interest, which was very funny, his fixed interest is like Halloween and horror movies <laughs> at mm. age four or five. So he wanted me to pull up images of the uh, Knott's Berry Farm thing that they do at Halloween, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and, and see, watch those while I was talking to his mom. So he definitely has, you know, some restricted interests. But to me, the, the approach, you know, the treatment, I suppose, but the approach is to say, okay, let him be who he is. You know, I said, we might need to teach him not to be so gory with the peers if you don't want you know, phone calls from their parents. But I said, like, let him be who he is. And then we address the issues as they come, right? If he starts to fall behind academically, if he starts to have language issues that are more obvious, then we get them. I mean, early intervention is great, but I think we need to know what we're addressing. Yeah, Dr. Prasant, uh, what are what are you, thoughts do you have about uh, when families uh, come in for an assessment and treatment and what they are typically told and maybe some tips for family about uh, how to how to shape and uh, obtain the, the the best treatment available or the best care. Yeah, and I, I, similar to what Alice said, I don't believe it's about you know, a, label, a labeled therapy or a labeled approach, even though we do have a framework that's a labeled one, the CERTS model. Um, it, it is about being the right putting the right supports in place. And at, uh, that notion of let's join the family and let's join the person on their journey because different kinds of supports are going to be needed at different times. Now, I, I do wanna be specific about, um, I think some of the damage that has happened by people proselytizing, um, you know, ABA is the only way. And as a matter of fact, there was a very significant study a couple of years ago Sandbank out of Project AIM, which demonstrated, wait a second, relationship and developmental approaches are showing stronger. Um, This was based upon a meta-analysis of many studies are showing stronger results with fewer negative side effects. Mm -hmm. So what it really comes down to is, um, and I am coming out of a developmental relationship-based model, is how are we truly being child or person-centered and family-centered? Um, how much do we really understand what the priorities are for families, for younger kids, or what, what does a child who's become a teenager or an adult, what do they want to focus on? You know, what are their passions? And as we like to say, what are their enthusiasms? Um, so it really does come down to, you know, how are the people, whether they're educators or therapists, how are they with families? How are they with a child or an autistic person? Um, And, you know, now that we hear from so many adults on the spectrum, you know, they talk about the fact about, you know, well, who is the most important person in your life? Well, I could trust my mother. Um, Just a few years ago, I uh, I had the honor of uh, moderating a panel of six autistic adults at the Autism Society of America conference. And each person I spoke to, and they had various levels of communication ability, but each of them pointed out that the most significant things that improved their quality of life had to do with a person or a couple of people in their lives. Um, So I think Mm -hmm. we need to understand, and one other quick point on this, you know, people say, oh, I want you to see this ABA therapist because I consult in all kinds of settings. Oh, she's just miraculous with this child. And I observe what's going on. And it was more about the relationship, knowing how to help the child regulate if the child was becoming dysregulated. And so much of what I saw as positive through my framework 
had very little to do with ABA training, mm. even though the person spoke about herself as an ABA therapist. So I really think we have to look at those kind of elements. What are those active ingredients in a person that really connects with the child and adult in a family that makes it work? I would like to get into a discussion about ABA specifically because, like we've already mentioned, that is the predominant therapy recommended uh, at this time. So I was previously unaware of the criticisms that exist about ABA therapy, and it seems like after reading more about it, it's actually coming a lot from individuals who are now adults with autism who had the treatment when they were young could... um, could you folks just kind of mention a little bit about what what the criticisms are specifically? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think, um, you know, we have an autistic researcher review board um, on our autism intervention research network on physical health, which is a research network funded by the Federal um, Maternal and Child Health Bureau and uh, that I direct um, and our national coordinating center is at UCLA. Um, and what I hear, and, and I've seen clinically as well, like ABA works, but in a very, to me, specific situation. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, there is the official kind of approach to ABA, and then there are behavioral approaches that may not be so strictly ABA. Okay. Um, I think at the very you know, an example, and, and I'm sure Barry could be much more specific about this, but an example that I've been told is, you know, look at my eyes, look at my, like it's behavioral conditioning, right? It, it's sort of the repetition and, and you know, almost um, what autistic individuals have told, like an undignified approach of mm. like forcing a child to look at someone's eyes when they don't necessarily want to, but like, and then being given a, like given a, a reward as a result. So it's, it's not taking into account their preferences and why they're not looking at eyes or whatever. And it's just forcing them, you know, say, I love you, say that it's just very like command driven. That is their mm-hmm. recollection of it. I'm sure maybe in actuality, it was not necessarily so, you know, militaristic or, but their perception is they were forced to do something that they, that made them very uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was sort of this forcing. And, you know, when, parents come to me and talk about ABA, like I have, as a clinician, I have to kind of gauge, is ABA going to work? And after, you know, treating uh, autistic patients for about 10 years, I'm newer to the scene. um, I think if, you know, I've had kids. So again, on Friday, I had a new patient, a nine-year-old, maybe he wasn't that new, but, but he was having, he was newly diagnosed. That's what it was. He was newly diagnosed at nine smart kid, very uh, challenging, I would say. You know, if if I said something, he'd be like, why, why, why do I have to do that? Why did you say that? What, you know, so, and and I have to take the time to answer the questions because he is, he's skeptical, right? Sure. Well, you, you tell him to look at eyes and he's going to be like, why, why should I? Right. (laughs) So, so an ABA therapist is maybe if they're only trained in their one way is going to have a challenge with a kid who is going to be able to question back. And so, you know, I've had parents very opposed to ABA because they don't want to lose their child, right? They don't want to turn their child into some sort of robot is their perception. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's not to say that ABA doesn't work in some situations, 
early intervention, young, um, and when there are significant behavioral challenges and perhaps parents that um, aren't as structured in their parenting or, or really lost about how to manage their child's behavior, mm-hmm. I think ABA is very successful in some of those settings. But I think you have to kind of gauge, gauge the child's sort of needs, gauge the parent's sort of needs. And I've also had parents sort of resent the notion that like they've been told by ABA therapists, um, okay, well, we're just here, you know, 15 hours a, a week. Uh, you need to learn ABA therapy so you can continue this approach when we're not here. And then the parents are being made to feel like mini therapists when they just want to be parents and there are other kids mm-hmm. in the home. It's like an unrealistic expectation. And so I've had parents who really resent that being told that they have to do that. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Let's Get Psyched on KUCR. And we're here with, with Dr. Barry Present and Dr. Alice Quo, and we're talking about autism, treatment, diagnosis um, in the community. And we're, we're currently talking about applied behavior analysis or what is probably the, the most accepted treatment or therapy approach for autism. And um, Dr. Quo just had some thoughts on that. Um, Barry, what uh, are your thoughts about, uh, is there, what is the role of ABA? What, when, uh, 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 the, 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 maybe the, how parents are managing the, the, uh, the messages that they're receiving about applying ABA? Yeah, yeah. You know, when people ask me to compare um, either our CERTS model or the DAR model that late Dr. Granley, uh, Stanley Greenspan developed um, or any other approach, my question is, what do you mean by ABA? Um, I, I've been around long enough that, um, as uh, you may know, my doctoral dissertation, I challenged the work of Lovas, the father of ABA, um, which really you know, has changed the way we look at echolalia for example. Um, So we have coined the term traditional versus contemporary ABA. And what I believe is contemporary about contemporary ABA over the decades has become much more child-centered and in some cases, much more family-centered. What does that mean? That there's more flexibility. I'll follow the child's leads. Mm -hmm. I'll listen to the family. If they disagree with the behavior plan, we have to take that into account. Why are they disagreeing? With that, um, I think you know some of the concerns about ABA, especially from autistic adults, um, many of whom tell me this, is that notion of what they experienced they had perceived you know um, as traumatic when they were young, um, and there are some very extreme examples of that. And then you hear people saying, "Well, ABA is torture," and and on the very extreme end of that continuum. Other concerns as we move along the continuum is. Well, okay, well, more contemporary ABA, you know, is more positive and it isn't, you know, so traumatic at all. It's not at all traumatic. It's more play-based. And then a criticism there is, but you're still just trying to get the child to comply and look neurotypical without understanding that part of who they are neurologically is different than a neurotypical child. And therefore we see the stimming when a child is excited or needs to calm down and things such as that. It's not a behavior to try to extinguish through behavior plan. Um, And then quite honestly, there are some approaches that are full under the category of ABA if we move along the continuum, that if you look at the whole program, it looks a a hell of a lot more like a developmental relationship-based approach than it's an ABA approach. Um, So, um, you know, there's been a lot of discussion. I just published an article with a young autistic woman who works in an ABA program. 
um, in California, as a matter of mm. fact. And she, it's like what she does to train the ABA staff to be more sensitive to the perspective and the experience of an autistic person. Um, and she says she's so surprised that many of the people trained in ABA are totally unaware of the fact that coercing eye contact or training eye contact is stressful for many autistic people. They're totally aware, unaware of the fact that what is called stimming very often is self-regulatory to help the child calm down when they engage in that. I'm not saying, well, stimming is that, just to be clear. So she, and she says the staff is very open to that, that they're changing their practices based upon the input she's giving as an autistic person. Um, and that, that article was in Autism Spectrum News, which was on a periodical, just published a few weeks ago. Um, so, you know, one of the things I really want to say is it's not just the treatment itself. And here's where I get back to my history a little bit. Decades and decades, you hear over and over, it's the only evidence-based approach. Um, ABA professionals refusing to even inform parents about other approaches. Many ABA people a few decades ago said all this stuff about sensory issues, it's a bunch of BS. It's an excuse for bad behavior. I mean, it's not just what you actually do when you sit down to a ch with a child. And I'll, you know, I'll take blame for this, but the fact that so many insurance companies, I mean, literally have been brainwashed into thinking they should only fund ABA therapy and no other therapies. Mm. So whatever happened to family-centered care and parent and helping parents to be well-informed. So if a parent says to me, Barry, what do you think about ABA? I will say, I want you to know first I have a bias. Okay. And I will tell you what other parents maybe had some success with what they called ABA, but you need to know there are other approaches as well. I think it's fair to say you go into an ABA clinic, people are not going to talk about informing parents about a range of approaches. You know, I was, I was thinking about, you know, okay, so if a child psychiatrist wants to um, consider ABA in her toolbox of therapies to recommend, uh, while there are other toolbox, other tools um, to choose from. In terms of getting access to those other tools, that's a whole nother challenge. And I think Alice, you could talk a little bit more about that. But I, uh, Barry, what you mentioned about insurance companies really only funding ABA—that's a big part of this too. Yeah, absolutely. The access issue is a significant one. I mean, especially for us in Los Angeles. And, you know, I think uh, the Affordable Care Act that was passed in March of 2010 was great uh, for autism, but did limit payment to ABA, right? So in that thousand page law that was passed, um, you know, of, like Obamacare, basically, was the first time that uh, ABA needed, like it was dictated by law that ABA be covered by insurance. So prior to 2010, a lot mm -hmm. of insurance companies got away with saying that autism was a learning disability and was not a health condition. And do, you know, thanks to the advocacy efforts of many psychiatrists, uh, that there's a paragraph in, mm -hmm. in that thousand page law that talks about paying for autistic, autism services, including ABA. So ABA was called out. And I think what you had back in 2010, and it took four years for that part of the law to get rolled out, 
um, the money states were kind of confused. Well, wait, wait, what is this now that we have to pay and insurance company? And so, of course, insurance companies aren't necessarily motivated to like do the right thing. So they're, oh, well, it only says we have to pay for ABA. We're only going to pay for ABA, right? Over time, what I've seen is in general, um, the savvy ABA agencies like call themselves ABA, but do actually employ a number of techniques. And most parents, like, you, you know, I can remember when I first started in this field clinically 10 years ago, parents coming in with like, I'm going to do, you know, the, the ECPHC program at UCLA, and then I'm going to do the Kegels program at UC Santa Barbara. They like would go with these high, you know, profile types of approaches, but the vast majority of parents don't know, and they are just struggling to get through the day, and they have multiple kids, and they just need help. They need help with specific behaviors. So I think from an access perspective, you know, I have to say the first question in the office, because my office is the one that has to get all the insurance authorizations, mm -hmm. is what is your insurance? What is your insurance and what wow, will your yeah. insurance pay for? And how much can you guys pay out of pocket? Because if, if there's no uh, discretionary funding in the family, because they're living kind of on a shoestring, and their insurance will only pay for X, I'm not going to tell them about some program that's amazing that they will never have access to. That's kind of unethical and kind of sad, I think. And so I really try to, like, this is the hard part in primary care is like balance what they, you know, they can realistically have access to and work with a combination of their health insurance and then the school, right? So asking for functional behavioral now, you know, assessments or getting a behaviorist to come in from the district to observe, you know, to support the teacher. Like it, it, it to me, it's just like trying to cut down those barriers with what the families can do, because I think it would also not be a great thing to be like, you really need to pay for this ABA, this agency. I know your insurance doesn't cover it, but pay the thousand dollars a month out of pocket. And that puts a strain on the family and leads to all this stress and marital discord. Like that's not great for the autistic kid either, you know? Yeah. Barry, did you want to follow up on that? Yeah. I, I think, you know, a lot of these issues, especially are, are of concern, you know, in the early intervention years, even the preschool and for home-based or even clinic-based services. But, you know, my bias is, has always been, we really got to get the schools in a true team-based approach and, and something that's very difficult in the schools because the staff don't have the time, and that is to truly be family-centered as well. Because if we look at the numbers of years that, you know, a youngster is going to be in the schools as opposed to the early intervention years, and I think what happens sometimes, and it's more specific to ABA, that if a child is exposed to ABA services, or the family gets those services in the preschool years, and they are not aware of other approaches or what the school is trying to do, maybe the school staff are not communicating that clearly, then there's the belief that you have to bring in that ABA consultant into the school, especially if there's not kind of a, a strong BCBA person there. Um, you know, one other thing I, I do need to mention, um, and that is my concern about the training of RBTs, registered behavior technicians, and BCBAs, um, that we don't look at that enough, that there's virtually no training in child and human development. So maybe it's kind of the nature of my consulting and my position, but I hear a lot about the nightmares, about somebody, actually a neighbor of mine, mm -hmm. a young woman who wants to go on in OT, um, but she needed some extra money and she has some time off. 
So she was trained by an ABA agency to do some home-based work with teens and young adults. And she literally got two weeks of training online and is going to have supervision for once every sixth visit when she goes out. And then she was told, well, your first person you're going to have to go out work with was a young man with a history of quote unquote aggression. And he's about six feet tall. And she quit right away. She goes, I'm totally unprepared for that. Mm-hmm. So um, that's something else we have to look at. And that's why I, I, I so value a team-based approach. And if you look at the range of approaches in autism, I'm not saying ABA cannot be team-based, but it tends to be the less team, the least team-based in terms of truly partnering with OTs, SLPs, pediatricians, child psychiatrists, and so forth. And I think we have to move much more in that direction. We have time for one more question. I was wondering if you could give some tips for families who um, may have a, a, a child with autism. What should they, maybe they should look for some early signs. How old should they be looking for some of these signs? And then how to negotiate the system and, and, and find effective care. Uh, uh, Dr. Quo, uh, Alice, would you like to start with that? Sure. Um, so that's, that's, a, that's sort of, to me, the million dollar question, right? The CDC has launched their Learn the Signs um, act early uh, campaign to try to raise awareness among pediatricians, among, you know, pretty much everybody so that they can help identify kids. Um, I, again, I think it, 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 to me, it's not about identifying the kid as autistic, because if there are no challenges, right, if the kid is autistic and loves horror movies, like, so be it. But it, it's when there starts to be challenges, if there's you know, if they're behind in their language milestones and they're having behavioral uh, acting out episodes as a result of not being able to communicate, um, if there are significant behaviors that are disruptive in the home or in the school setting, that's sort of when I think intervention needs to happen. Um, but uh, just identifying kids for the sake of identifying them as autistic, I think um, is perhaps less of a priority, but I defer to Barry on that. <laughs> Yeah, 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 and and I I I respectfully disagree a little bit, and this is mostly what I've learned from autistic adults, that I think in the long run, um, self awareness is one of the most important goals, and I believe for get back to your question that having parents connect to a community that have shared experiences, so, you know, two weeks ago we had our twenty fifth annual parent retreat weekend, we have parents of newly diagnosed kids, we have parents of autistic family members in their 30s and 40s. We have autistic parents and autistic people attending. And when you find your home and you find your community, then in so many cases, it may be professionals, it may be other parents, that you feel that, okay, I don't have to go through this journey by myself. But I do believe even for the most capable kids who may be able to pass for quote unquote not autistic, that at some point, you know, if they do meet criteria, I think it's important to have that discussion about that. And that's all the time we have for this edition of Let's Get Psyched. Today we talked about the autism community and the striving to obtain effective therapy, support, treatment with experts, Dr. Barry Present and Dr. Alice Quo. Thank you both for joining us on Let's Get Psyched. Thanks for having me. Great, thank you. And if you have comments, questions, suggestions for the show, you can write us at Get Psyched on KUCR at gmail.com. And you can also listen to past episodes of Let's Get Psyched on your favorite streaming platform, as well as enjoy an extended version of the show. If you like tonight's show, 
Please follow us and post a review. This episode was recorded remotely in our homes. Our producer is Elliot Fong. Our production assistant is Benjamin Metrican. I've been your host, psychologist, Dr. Aaron Parks. Tune in next week for another edition of Let's Get Psyched.